The book of Malachi, so for those of you who don't know, in the, old, the Bible is divided into two sections, Old Testament and New Testament. And in the Old Testament, God's special people are called the Israelites, the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel is divided into two, they have a sort of civil war, if you will, and they're divided into two main governments. The northern kingdom, which is referred to in the Bible as Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is referred to as Judah. And both of these nations eventually rebel against God, and God allows um, enemies that are around them in Palestine to invade their land, to capture them, to send them into exile. So the, the northern kingdom, Israel, um, they go into exile in 722 B.C., 722. And about 150 years later, Judah, the southern kingdom, the Babylonians come in and they take them away and they're also in exile. And the nation of Israel, the actual geographical location is left in shambles. Okay? So this is what we're dealing with. Now, most scholars say that the book of Malachi, this, this um, prophetic text to the Israelites, most say that it was written in 433 B.C. The reason that's important is because right before this text was written, a man named Nehemiah, who lived in Persia, who was an Israelite, he gathered a big group of Israelites and said, King uh, his name was Artaxerxes. King Artaxerxes, please let us go back to our land and rebuild our wall. And so the king, you know, by, the, by God's grace, the king gives him permission. And Nehemiah takes this, this squad back to Israel, and they're like, we're going to rebuild. We're going to start, we're going to get the engineers coming doing blueprints. We're going to get the architects working. We're going to get some just cheap labor from the college students. And we're just going to build up the wall, Right? So this is what they start doing. Nehemiah takes two of these trips. And the book of Malachi is right in the middle of the trips. It's right in the middle. Right about 433 B.C. Okay. Why is this important? This is important, guys, because we need to understand that this text is based in what Doug, I think, called last week the wild, wild west. Right? There's no firm government in Palestine. There's all these enemy, enemy territories that are still attacking the Israelites. There's a lot of chaos. Uh, the, tel- the 12 tribes are kind of dispersed. There's not really any leader, not much leadership going on. And there's not much the Israelites can count on. That's tough. That's really tough. But there's one constant for the Israelites. And that is that they can continue to have a relationship with Yahweh, with God. And in Judaism, the way this takes place is there's priests. The nation, uh, the tribe of Levi were priests. And the priests basically, I, I thought about this today, and I said it this way. I think the priests are what we could call spiritual tax specialists. And what I mean by that is, you know how, you know, well, first of all, there's no spiritual turbo, tur- turbo tax back in the day, right? So it's not like they can, they just go to God straight away. Um, so they have to go to a specialist, and the priests would spend years and years and years learning the legal and religious code. Just like if you go to a tax specialist in town, they spent years studying the tax code. So they can give you the right amount of money back, right? You want those dollars in your pocket. So you would go to the priest with your best animal, with an unblemished male, usually a sheep. And the priest would know all the legal and religious code. He would say, I got you, man. Just go home and sleep, and I'll send you the return in the mail. 
and he would offer it to God so you didn't have to, right? So it was done according to the T. This is what's going on. And the priests bringing this relation, holding this relationship between God and the Israelites is the one constant that they have in all this political mess that's going on, okay? And so what we read here is a big deal for the Israelites. Because what the first thing, if you're taking those notes, the first event in that series of six events is that the priest pollute the offering. The priests pollute the offering. You can see that in verses 6 through 8. And what they're doing, basically, we learn, is that they're taking, um, they're either, um, people are bringing them blemished, like, um, dirty, spotted animals, and the priests are kind of turning a blind eye and just letting it slip, or, even more possible, is that people are actually bringing uh, the unblemished, perfect animals, but the priests are storing those for their flock, and they're grabbing an, um, a blemish, a spotted, a dirty one, and sacrificing that instead. And we don't know exactly why the priests are doing this. I mean, was it greed? Was it laziness? Was it that they thought they wouldn't be caught? What was it? We don't know. But we do know that it was irresponsible of them. And the second thing that happens is that God calls them on it, right? Let's look at verse 8. This is what God says. He says, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? <laughs> and then God asks, present that, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Right? I don't think there's anything worse than your boss calling you out on something you did wrong. Especially when it's public humiliation. I had a boss, for those of you who don't know, I'm a part-time server here in town. I work at Chewy's, so if you like Tex-Mex, come see me. But I, had, I worked at another restaurant before, and <laughs> I had a manager who, no matter how many times I swept and wiped the tables, and no matter... No matter how much silverware I rolled, she always wanted me to do more. And it was frustrating because I would work hard all night long. JP's a server. He's laughing in the front row. All night long trying to meet these expectations that she had. And she'd always come back and say, no, no, my expectations are a little bit higher. A little bit higher. And if that's how it feels to have a human boss do that to you, imagine... Imagine answering directly to God. And for whatever reason, they're offering the wrong kind of animal on this altar. And God says, your governor won't even accept this. Why would I? Don't forget my expectations. He reminds them what's truly required, what the law says. Okay? Well, what happens next? Third event. Says the priest, I said the priest argue back. Right? Verses 6 and 7. They ask two questions. They say in verse 6, how have we despised your name? Right? He tells them clearly that, hey, you've despised my name by polluting the offering. They say, wait, 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 wait. How have we despised your name? Right? And then in verse 7, they say again, how have we polluted you? It's almost as they're, they're smack talking. They're sassing God back. They're, they're asking him, yeah, I know 
I, I, know, I know this isn't exactly what I said, but, 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 come on. Do you really expect me to have this expectation? Do you really expect me to hold these standards up? God, look at, look at the chaos around me. Look at everything that's going on. I'm a poor priest. I, de- I deserve to pocket a little, a little um, lamb every one, now and again. Right? God calls him on it. But you know, I don't think it's wrong to feel this way. And here's why. I'll give you an example. When I was in um, high school, uh, there was this legendary science teacher in, in my high school named Mr. Boyd. Mr. Boyd, um, he'd been working at that school for 27 years. When I, he had taught some of my other teachers when they were in high school. Get that. And Mr. Boyd, he was about 70 years old. Um, and what I mean by legendary is that we literally had legends about him that went around the school. There was one legend, I remember, that said that Mr. Boyd had, was a chemistry major in, in, high, in college, I'm sorry. And one day, on his wedding day, the bride left him at the altar. And the only consolation he had was his coursework in science. And so he dug his head into a book, and he never looked up again. Like, this is the stuff that we're talking about, a legendary teacher. And I tell you, his classes were hard, were hard. Tenth grade chemistry, I'll never forget this. He gave us a spring break project. You heard that right. A spring break project. And what the project was, was we were supposed to take 15 pieces of paper, loose leaf, the college rule, right? 34 lines, I know it by heart, 34 lines each side. And we were supposed to take 15 sheets of paper and look at the periodic table and use the first eight elements to write a thousand different ionic compounds back and front, line by line, in word form and chemical notation. In seven days over spring break, like, come on. And you know what everyone said at that point? Mr. Boyd, this is not fair. That's right. This is not fair. This is my spring break. This is my vacation. These are unfair requirements, right? That's what everyone said. And to be honest, they were kind of unfair. I don't, I don't disagree with that. And I don't think it was wrong for us to feel it because it's, it's a feeling. Because you had all these plans to go to the beach. You had these plans to go hang out with your girlfriend and, you know, to go on a little road trip and, you know, to, to go just to watch Netflix every single day for seven days and not get out of bed, right? Yeah. Shout out to Netflix. <laughs> and when he interrupted those plans, it seemed unfair, right? It seemed unfair. And this is, I think, exactly what the priests are feeling. The priests are saying, God, this is a little ridiculous. How, how am I supposed to minister and serve these people perfectly? Can't you just cut me some slack? This ministry that you're asking me to do is just unfair. And I don't think it's wrong to feel that way. But it's wrong to disobey. 
And that's where the rubber met the road. Because the fifth thing, I'm sorry, the fourth thing that happens, happens in verse 9. In verse 9, the Lord says very clearly, And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. Number one, the priests pollute the offering. They offer the wrong thing for whatever reason, right? Number two, God reminds them of the clear expectations that he has for ministry. This is how you priests are supposed to minister to my people. These are the exact guidelines, right? Number three, the priests, they feel like, hey, this, is, this ministry they're asking, this is unfair. And God, in his just kindness and grace, he says, entreat my favor and ask me to be gracious on you. That's what he says. He says, Malachi, this, I can't believe that these people would accuse me of being unfair after all I've done. But I love them. They're my leaders that I've chosen to lead this nation. So tell them, entreat my favor and search for my graciousness, right? I want to I wanna sh- outline this one step further. I just wanna, want you to hear these words about the nature of God and understand the grace that he's having in this moment. You can turn your Bibles if you're a fast flipper. But Psalms 103, verses 8 through 10 say, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. What we see is, the priest sinning, and we see this amazing patience that God has, a very God-like quality to, okay, I'm going to give you another shot. And that's what he does. But unfortunately, the priests, for whatever reason, I wish I could tell you why, but they don't, they don't submit to God's requirements. They don't repent of what they were doing wrong. Look at verse 13. God says, but you say, talking to the priest, but you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord of hosts? After God patiently gives these priests, these ministry leaders, who are supposed to be the representative of God to the people, who are supposed to be the example for what the Israelite is supposed to, how the Israelite is supposed to behave. After he gives them the grace and he gives them the second shot and says, entreat my favor, the priests say, but God, what a weariness serving you is. And at the thought of serving their people by sacrificing according to the rules, they snort at the thought. They scoff at it. Why would you ask me to do this? They begrudge it. And unfortunately, guys, God 
it seems to me is, is left with no choice than to end on verse 14. He says, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am the great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. God doesn't mince words here, guys. He says, Cursed be the one who knows what he's supposed to do, who's in leadership, who's a minister, who has the ability to sacrifice the right thing, has the ability to serve the people in the right way, but he cheats God. And God was not happy. And if there's one thing I want you guys to take away from this, it's this phrase. Selfish minister, suffering people. Selfish minister, suffering people. Because guys, what's at stake here is not only the name of the great king, but the well-being of the people of Israel. It's not just God's glory among the surrounding nations. It's not just God's glory back in Persia where they came from. But it's the well-being of a people who so desperately want to know God and experience God, but who don't know the law well enough to sacrifice correctly. They don't know the tax code enough to file correctly with the IRS. They need help. And the people who have the knowledge are irresponsible with it and are selfish, and the people suffer. Now, of course... This is an Old Testament story, and we never experience anything like that with our spiritual leaders, right? Right? Or do we? How about this? How about we take out the word priest for a second, and we substitute it with pastor? Have you ever been in a church where a pastor pollutes the offering? Have you been in, ever been in a church where the pastor doesn't live up to his expectations? What are those expectations? Well, let's read them. 1 Timothy chapter 3 says the quali qualifications for overseers. I'm going to read in verse 2. It says, overseer being a pastor. Says overseer, therefore the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. That's just the first bit. So the question is: Have you ever been part of a religious community where the pastor? is violent, where the pastor is a lover of money, where the pastor is always picking fights with people in the congregation. Now, we're lucky to have Doug here. He's a great pastor. But I tell you, there's some, there's some bad spiritual leaders in the world, guys, that hurt people because of their selfishness. 
And you know what? When those spiritual leaders, when those pastors specifically, when they pollute that offering, God doesn't strike them dead like Zeus. He doesn't, like, send the Holy Spirit wind to blow them off the pulpit next time they get up to speak, right? He gives them a clear reminder of what's expected of them, right? You may, you may want to argue that here's the clear reminder of what's expected of them, right? 1 Timothy 3. It's right there in the Bible. You know, unfortunately, there's a lot of spiritual leaders, pastors, who, who argue with God at this point and say, God, this is just too much for, me to, for you to ask of me. And you know, once again, I feel for the pastors at this point. I do. I grew up in a missionary family. My dad was a pastor. And I know the toll that it takes being the overseer of a congregation. I've seen it in my dad. I know how hard it can be on pastors. It's, there's so many people who are constantly setting you up on a pedestal and don't want you to fail. It's hard. And so God gives grace, right? He's patient. He comes to our spiritual superiors and he says, this is what I expect of you. This is the law. This is your requirements, right? I, I'm, not angry. I'm not angry. I just want you to remember this is how you're supposed to serve your people. The, when you accepted this role in ministry, this is what you signed up for. The expectations were clear at the beginning. This is the contract. This is the dotted line you signed, right? And I don't think there's anything more heartbreaking for a church community than when a pastor does what the priest did in Malachi. When they put their selfishness over repentance. And they say, what a weariness this is to love these people. What a weariness this is. And sometimes, unfortunately, guys, God has to bring those sins to light and publicly reject a pastor. And if you've ever been in a church where a pastor has to step down because of sin, you know the heartbreak that comes along with that. Because selfish ministers always lead to suffering people. Right? But of course, this is only applicable to our pastors, right? right? It's not as if like every member would be a minister or something, right? Or is it the case, guys, that this passage really is aimed directly at our hearts? It's easy to bash on our spiritual leaders. <laughs> it's easy to look at this pastor and say, oh, I can't believe you did that. But if you're going to be part of this fellowship, then we're going to all learn together that every member here is going to be a minister. And what does that mean specifically for us? Well, you could be a life group leader. If you're a life group leader here, now raise your hand. These guys right here are the bomb. They're there. They lead our life groups with grace, with patience, with kindness, with love. They listen. 
even when they know the answer already? <laughs> they have quiet spirits. They're here to serve. They'll pick you up in the middle of the night in Miami when you're drunk and you made a dumb decision. They'll help you buy a plane ticket home when your grandparent passes away. These are your ministers. And if you're in the room tonight, then you're, you're eligible to be a life group leader. It may not be in this summer. It may not be next fall. But if you love your friends and you're willing, then why couldn't you minister? Why couldn't you take a friend out for coffee and say, hey, man, how's your soul this week? How's your soul doing? And they're going to be like, what are you talking about? And you're going to be like, I just want to know the, the deep part of you that you hide from everyone else. How are you doing? Tell me. I care. And if, if you're worried about paying for the coffee, come see me. I'll give you five bucks. Because we want to help you here become ministers who love people. And I tell you guys, once you step into that role, it's only a matter of time until you feel what the priests felt and until you feel what many pastors feel. And that is, this ministry stuff is so unfair. These requirements that you have on me, they just like, they're stifling. Man, I didn't know I had to give up my freedom to be able to love people. Man, this person, he comes every week and he just won't stop talking. Do I really have to listen to him? This girl, she's so annoying. She's so annoying. Do I really have to be kind? Gosh, man, I just... I worked a double shift yesterday. I know life groups tonight. I know I'm supposed to be there, but gosh, doesn't God call everyone to rest sometimes? Right? You're going to feel that the requirements of ministry that you stepped into as a believer are unfair. And so let's, let's go through the same thing, but with the word believer instead, right? At a certain point, guys, if you're a believer, you're going to pollute the offering. You're going to sin. You're going to not measure up to the requirements that God has placed on your life. And what are those requirements? Well, I'm glad you asked, guys. Romans 12, verse 1. I think it's the simplest way to explain it. Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. If you think it's hard to get the Old Testament sacrifices right and know all that religious code and get all that set up right, let me tell you what's harder. What's harder is when you're the sacrifice. When you're the living, breathing sacrifice. Where you're dead tired at the end of the day and a friend needs help. Friend, this friend's struggled with depression for years. 
and he's calling you, and you see his number, and you know this might be a relapse for him. But you're tired. Man, can't you just forward the, the call to Doug or something? Right? I mean, okay. And you know, in that moment, God will remind you of the requirements that he's placed on your life, guys. He's going to. It's the little, little voice in you called the Holy Spirit. And he's going to remind you, hey, you're called to love your neighbor as yourself. You're called to be a living, breathing sacrifice. Pour out your life for the people around you. That's what you signed up for, right? And at that point, we will all feel like I felt when Mr. Boyd gave me that spring break project. Mr. Boyd, this is unfair. I had these plans. I was going to watch Netflix. Do I really, I mean, we're going to argue. God, really? Do I really have to do this? And you know, at that point, God's going to give you grace. The same grace he extends to the priests and the same grace he's going to extend to our pastors when they feel this way. Because it's not wrong to feel as if these requirements are unfair. Because there are a lot. Christianity is going to call you to give everything you have. There's a really, um, there's a quote that I read years ago that sticks with me. And I think about it almost every week. It's by a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Bonhoeffer writes this. He has a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And this is what he writes. It's one of maybe the most impactful sentences I've ever read. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And you may be here tonight and say, ministry is already taking too much from me. It took my family. It took my career. It takes my friendships every day. I don't get to spend time with the people I want to spend time with. I don't get to do the fun things that all my friends are doing because I have this weight of ministry. You're going to feel that way. God's going to give you the grace. And my plea to you this evening is don't make the mistakes that the priests made. Don't put your selfishness over repentance. Remember in the midst of that feeling, that a selfish minister always leads to suffering people. Because it's not just our well-being that's at stake, guys. It's not just the glory of our king that's at stake. What's at stake is the lives of your friends. Because that one ministry thing that you had to do, that you could have done, that one word you could have spoken, it might hurt someone that you didn't. And that's hard. I know that's hard. I feel that with you guys. And so what's the hope? How are we different than the priests? If the priests who spent all these years studying, they failed, will we fail? Is it just inevitable that we'll fail as well? I think there's one hope in this, guys. And I think it's, there's three things that God gives us when we feel ministry is unfair. 
There's three things God gives us. Two of which I think he gives the priests in Malachi. Those first two. God gives us the law. Or in other words, clear expectations. God gives us clear expectations. If you want to know what God requires of you, before you take the plunge into Christianity, before you take the plunge into discipleship, just pick up a Bible and study it. Count the cost. What is this going to require of me? Because the law tells us clearly. There's clear expectations. But two guys, I think God is going to give us a chance to repent. You can count on that. Or in other words, clear opportunities. He's going to give us clear expectations. He's going to give us clear opportunities. But guys, I think there's one thing that we get that maybe the priests in Malachi didn't have. And this is why I feel for the priests here, even though they made a horrible mistake. I feel for them because maybe they didn't have someone to look to for an example of what a good priest is. And guys, that third thing that God gives us is Jesus. Jesus is the example of the ultimate minister. And if you think, if we think that the ministry requirements put on us are unfair, we need to chat with Christ for a little bit. Because if anyone has the right to claim that, it's Jesus Christ, who everything was required for him, not of his friends, but even of his enemies, people who didn't love him. So if you're here tonight, and you feel this. And you're wrestling with this idea of fairness. And you're saying, God, I know you're calling me to take this step. But it just seems unfair. How could you require so much of me? Look to Jesus. He's the example that you need. And you can count on God's grace to walk you through that. Let's pray. Father, this is all about you. Christ, we love you. As we, as we sing tonight. Help us to not forget the cross. Help us not forget our ultimate priest who loves us and who gives everything for us. Help us to follow in his footsteps to be ministers that aren't selfish, God, because we know that selfish ministers bring suffering people. I pray in Jesus' name. I want us to invite us to stand or to assume a posture of worship however you feel comfortable, whether that's sitting, going in the back, standing still, dancing. We're going to sing that the Lord is great. And even if you're feeling like things are unfair tonight, you have to cling on to this truth, guys. It's our only hope. If you need prayer, we're going to have staff down here. We're going to have a pastor down here if Doug's here. And... Uh, come see us. We'd love to pray with you. Just.